Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of Political State. I'm Ben Felder with The Oklahoman, and today's episode is being recorded on Friday, January 12th. Later in the episode, I'm going to be joined with our federal reporter, Justin Wingeter. We're going to talk about the latest comments from President Trump and some of the reaction from the Oklahoma delegation, as well as some new uh, uh, favorability polls for the president and the legislature and Governor Mary Fallon. But in this first segment, I want to introduce our guest, Representative Leslie Osborne, Republican from Mustang and a uh, labor commissioner candidate in yes. this year's election. Uh, yes. Representative, thanks so much for your time. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about... Um, probably what we'll talk about most is the budget. And that's what we've been talking about for the past year. I think you were on Political State a year ago, and I think it's kind of safe to say not much has changed because we're still trying to finalize the (laughs) fiscal year 18 budget. We're in a second session. The regular session is beginning in a few weeks. But let's start with kind of the the news of the day related to that. Um, A group of uh, civic and business leaders Mm -hmm. yesterday put out their own proposal on how to uh, fill a budget hole, a series of tax increases. Um, What's your reaction to that? You know, I'm very appreciative that people are out advocating, be that uh, advocating groups that are for teachers to the DDSD waiver waiting list for our disabled, but also to these business leaders who say, you know, we gave you a year. And we really thought, because if you remember, we had like a $650 million budget hole two or three years ago, then $850 million, last year $1.1 billion. But instead, we keep just doing these one-time fixes, plugging little things in for the hole, and not a long-term solution. So I think they were disappointed that we didn't get that done, especially in the first special session or regular session. So I appreciate the ideas. Um, and I appreciate the consortium of people coming together. I do think that it will still be an uphill battle Mm -hmm. for two reasons. Uh, The first being that uh, state question 640. Yeah, that three-fourths vote that you need. Three-fourths vote. So if everybody, you know, that's out there complaining that we didn't invest, we didn't do anything, remember, it was almost miraculous that in special session we got 72% of House, Senate, Democrat, and Republican to come together on something. Because even in your own family, mm-hmm. at a family reunion, to get 75% of people to agree wholeheartedly on one thing is difficult. That's a high margin. I believe that there will be bills in the legislature, and potentially an initiative petition to lower that to a 60% margin, which still is higher than just a simple majority. It's more like a property tax vote, but may make it easier for us to at least consider on desperate times when we might need revenue. That's number one. Number two is I'm afraid there may be a few things in the bill that are unpalatable to enough of the members, and that may be wind. Okay. Um, so if you remember last year, we did do something very proactively is we ended the wind tax credits for any new projects that with the turbines were not up and spinning on July 1st of 17. Mm-hmm. That was actually cutting off what had mirrored federal subsidies. but. We still have to pay for the next nine years. They signed legally binding contracts, these wind companies that came in, invested, spent millions of dollars in the state because we asked them to sign legally binding contracts. 
So that being said, if you look at the package, I am all in favor of a business group bringing something to us as ideas. I'm all in favor of a multifaceted package that kind of goes across broad-based to different industries mm -hmm. and groups, which this does. The concern I'm hearing from a lot of my colleagues is that the wind one goes back retroactively and changes the rules, but the one for oil and gas goes forward. Okay. So for two to four percent on gross production would be on anything drilled or coming out of the ground going forward, not on old wells or old things. The wind one wants to change the amount of those payouts for and cap what we have already promised them. So in other states, a lot of times when these things happen, you're litigated, it's tied up in court, it's messy, and then you come back and have to pay it with penalties yeah. or with interest. And you're also really think about this. Remember the General Motors deal about 10 or 20 years ago in Oklahoma City. When you change the rules retroactively, you kind of lose your reputation nationwide for businesses wanting to move to your state because they say, hey, they have a bad problem in their budget. They're going to change the rules on us and pull the rug out when we had a business plan. So I think that retroactive portion now, if it was doing something on wind only going forward, then I think we might have something that we can consider. And, and I don't think that they were hard and fast that there might not be able to be tweaks or changes. Yeah, so this, this wide proposal of, of increasing taxes on oil and gas production, cigarettes, uh, fuel, mm -hmm. um, you know, changing tax deductions, I mean, it's, it's a broad it's concept. Broad. And, um, and it didn't look like something that was just sketched on a napkin. I know that there was kind of some thought right. behind it and there were some lawmakers involved in those conversations. But what you just kind of uh, articulated over the last few minutes, I mean, this is kind of when the rubber meets the road, and kind of an example of why it's just not easy to pull it's the trigger not. on a lot of these things. No. What, do you think, though, that given the fact that with the you know the press conference that was held on Thursday and um, you know kind of the coalition of support, you know, it included um, you know Larry Nichols and some mm -hmm. oil and gas uh, uh, company representatives. It included some people from a wide variety of business interests, mm -hmm. and they all kind of acknowledged that hey, this isn't what our favorite thing to do. Right. Is that going to, do you think that's going to provide any kind of cover for the I legislature think it does. a little bit? And like I said, once again, I want to say thank you to this group and these different industry leaders from all over the state for coming together. Everybody from bankers to oil men to manufacturers. I, believe me, the input is welcome. And I think that a lot of them will go back and visit with their own personal representatives and senators and try to gain traction that way. So there's maybe a little more of that broad-based support that sometimes when we hear, we're in a vacuum, mm -hmm. we're, in a, we're in a silo at the Capitol, and we really kind of hear a cacophony of voices that think the way we think. Yeah. But I think that there will be more impetus and pressure. Now, a lot of them said, we weren't happy with everything in this, but this is the best we could do. This gets everybody to the table. And I agree with that. And, and so I'm not trying to say that that's necessarily my personal opinion on everything, but what I keep hearing is that retroactive portion on the wind is what's giving people some heartburn because none of the other things and any of those other broad-based initiatives go back retroactively on any industry. Yeah. Well, let me ask you about some other criticism I heard yesterday with this plan, and um, and I saw it from uh, you know across, across the political spectrum, but uh, you know especially maybe from the left side, um, you know that you have a group of. Of, of businesses and special interests and, you know, a press conference that's, you know, a bunch of white men <laughs> is something I heard a lot, uh, you know, making decisions. And of course, you know, it's not going to into effect. This is a proposal. Um, is there a concern to you that, I mean, the legislature is the body of the people. I mean, these are the representatives, the right. voice of, of your constituents and ideally a voice for all constituents of all income levels, um, all demographics. Mm -hmm. um, but here we saw a group that, you know, maybe doesn't necessarily represent, um, you know, 
the average Oklahoman, um, and we know that people in these positions, you know, they have a they have right. a larger platform. You know, they're in a, a position of power. Does that concern you at all? That you know that this that we may be having ideas coming from an unelected body. Ultimately, the elected body would have to approve right. it. But can you kind of talk and, me through? And I can see concerns? your point that maybe you would say there might not be a lot of diversity. Say, if you looked at this group, what's their average income? or something like that. What yeah. demographic are they from? So I think that would be, and I have heard this same argument. That being said, like I said at the very beginning, I have been so appreciative, and not everyone is, of these advocacy groups. So when you get the ones, I've speak, spoken to a couple of classes of OU, um, and the interesting thing, this was with former um, representative Cal Hobson, mm-hmm. has asked me to speak, who was a very liberal Democrat, I'm a Republican, and he has these people coming in that want to advocate at the Capitol. They want to advocate for their kids' classroom sizes and their and and having certified teachers in the classroom. They're from all walks of life, but they're but you don't usually see this. And a lot of people say, well, that's just going to fill the halls, and we're going to hear no. I want to hear people from all 77 counties telling us what they think. So if you think back to it that way, yes, this group is not real diverse, mm-hmm. but they are as far as looking at the different industries, but. We're not going to take verbatim. We're not going to, they're not writing the bill. They're not pushing it through themselves. It's still going to have to make it through a lot of hoops and hurdles. And that's where, to be honest, I'm a little nervous about it being able to reach that threshold or that there wouldn't be some changes. But if it still has to filter through the legislature, where an interesting stat is that our biggest demographic is retired educators, Hmm. not lawyers like it is in D.C., I still think that that gives it enough cover or filtration that it isn't necessarily just one demographic. Yeah. You talked about how hard it was last year to even get, you know, the 72 uh, percent when you need the 75 percent. I think there are some casual observers of politics that may think, hey, it's an election year. Oklahomans are frustrated. They want to get this problem fixed. So naturally, lawmakers are going to want to get something fixed. You know, but for someone who watches politics closely, I know that oftentimes it's the opposite effect. Double Is it sword. harder this year than last year? I think it's harder. And I hate that, but I'm going to be honest. It's just like in anything else. There's, uh, there's good doctors and bad doctors, good teachers and bad teachers. We have a lot of statesmen at the Capitol, and we have a lot of politicians. So for the statesmen at the Capitol, in both parties and in both sides of the rotunda, I think they see that we have a big enough problem, that there is a huge public outcry, and it doesn't matter if you're up on the ballot this year or not. Let's do the right thing. Let's fix the state, right? Uh, and let's don't do one of these little 30-minute fixes. Let's do a 10-year fix. Let's look long-term. Now, on the other hand, are there some people that will say, I'm going to be on a ballot because we file in April, and that will be all members of the House, half mm-hmm. of the Senate, and we're on the primary ballot in June, June yeah. and they're going to say, what, you want me to vote on something that's going to have a revenue increase? Or my base, my red meat base may say no new taxes ever. Well, well I guess we'll find out. Yeah. And that's where I always say to groups I speak to, don't listen to what your representative says in their postcard or what they say, because every one of them, 149, I guarantee go to their public schools and say, I am pro-education. Mm-hmm. It's how they vote. Yeah. So hold them accountable for how they vote. Yeah, you're right. With that that primary being in June, I mean, if it's a general in June, it may may be different. But the primary voter is a different voter. It is. Yeah. What? Let me ask you about 640. you know this the, the what the threshold you know came from in, in 1990 or 91 uh, when it was passed uh, by voters uh, you know in a very conservative state mm-hmm. conservative back then still conservative today wanting to put in this high threshold wanting to make it hard I mean this was mm-hmm. kind of designed they did. and they there's did. some people that say this is exactly what we wanted this is exactly what we wanted I don't know that's the majority but there has been some talk of, of you know lowering that threshold like mm-hmm. you said to 60 percent um, 
how, what's the best way for that to take? Because I was having this conversation with someone the other day that, you know, if this was something that the governor announced or, or House leadership, I, you know, from what I know of some parts of the electorate, that may be seen as, well, they just want more power. I mean, they just right. want to make it easier. So it sounds, in, in my opinion, the best way to do this is kind of this more grassroots mm -hmm. or low-key, you know, processed, where it really feels like it's maybe, uh, you know, voter-driven. I mean, what do you feel like is the best path forward uh, to changing it? And do you support changing the threshold? I do support changing the threshold, not to a simple majority. I support the 60% margin, which is still difficult. Mm -hmm. That is still difficult. It is in a pro local property tax election when they want to build a new school in Amber Pocasset. So anywhere mm -hmm. you are, that's a difficult margin at 60%. So, but let's also make it 60% to lower taxes. Let's make it a little harder, a little higher threshold for anything that affects the big fiscal picture because we politicians, mm -hmm. Uh, tend to think in very short cycles, the next election, term limits. We aren't necessarily thinking about one-year, three-year, five-year, ten-year plans, which mm -hmm. is what anyone would do with their own personal businesses. We've got to get more into that mindset. So how do you sell it? I think you sell it as it's been this long since we were able to raise any revenue. Hence, because of that, I want you to look at what's happened to the reforms of House Bill 1017. Small classroom sizes gone. Uh, well-compensated teachers, gone. When the best and brightest aren't going or being retained in the classroom, I think that is what helps sell it, is that we've got to do something for education. That's the resounding call that we're hearing from everyone. Mm -hmm. You've got to do something for education. But also sell it as, we've cut 85% of our agencies, about an average of 45%. Nobody's saying grow back to this mm -hmm. massive amount of government spending. Put in some reforms. Make sure we do line item budgets. If you're going to pass this, then make sure that we do things that also uh, make sure that every agency Agency has a performance audit every four years. Do them on a rolling basis. 67 appropriated agencies, so we're 15 of them or so are audited every four years. Give the taxpayer assurances that we're going to spend the money wisely, and I think you have a better chance of selling it. Yeah, will definitely be interesting to watch uh, mm -hmm. this year. Uh, well, the few minutes we have left in this segment, uh, let me ask you: you're you're, you're running for not re-election, you're running for uh, for a new position right. as labor commissioner. So first, for those who may not know, you know what is a labor commissioner? Exactly. And, and tell well, me a little what's about a labor the, yeah. commissioner, and why would you yeah. even want yeah. to do that? So this will be my tenth year in the legislature. We'll serve till November, but I'll be on the primary ballot in June. So what does a labor commissioner do? Prior to right to work, they did a a lot of things that actually dealt with unions and mm -hmm. non-unions. There's very small segment of that anymore. Now there's maybe a wage and labor division, small segment. The main thing they do is half of the agency is regulating industries that keep people safe. We're making sure that a certified person is checking every boiler in the state every year and is checking elevators and amusement park rides. And it, it's a real well-oiled ship. We have a great uh, current commissioner, Melissa Houston, who's not running for re-election. And uh, she's done a great job of making sure those are fee-for-service and they're well-maintained. And a lot of industry input, not mm -hmm. onerous regulations. But the other half's really interesting. And it's dealing with private businesses and public entities across all 77 counties, going out and offering free inspections so that when the feds come out with OSHA, because everybody hears mm -hmm. about that, you've already taken care of a lot of things that keep your workers safe. And that's a very important thing. And hence, we have one really good stat in the state. We hear bad stats all the time. 3.5 per 100 people injured a year on the job in Oklahoma. Almost double that nationwide because hmm. we're very proactive. But I say, why not while you're out there working with all these businesses? You're going out, taking them the shiny certificate and uh, their certification. Ask them, first of all, thank you for being here. 
thank you for providing jobs in our state. How do we keep you in Oklahoma and how do we grow you? And maybe do a little more working with them and interfacing with the legislature on uh, be it workforce development, um, onerous regulations, uh, how are your tax credits, your tax code, and, and actually be a little bit of a conduit. We talk about new jobs all the time. Yeah. We don't do a lot about the ones we've got here and thank goodness we have them. Let's make sure we keep those and really be a conduit on growing them. Things like occupational licensing, there's been a lot of talk about doing some changes, reforms with that. I think that's a natural fit at labor and the workforce development. Yeah, we see, hear so much about jobs and regulation at the national level. It sounds like it's you know it's even more of a of an important issue at the state level, right. and maybe that's where actually you see a lot more of the so interaction. So now you know what a labor commissioner does. We do. So, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Representative Osborne, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate yes. you coming on Thanks to for Political me. State. Uh, good luck finishing the session we're in. Good luck beginning the next regular session and on the campaign trail. Okay, thank you. Well, we're going to take a quick break here at Political State. When we come back, Justin Wingard is going to join me. We're going to talk a little bit about the uh, national uh, political storylines and how they're shaking out here in Oklahoma. We'll be right back. Well, welcome back to Political State. I'm Ben Felder with The Oklahoman, and joining me in this second segment is Justin Wingeter. Justin, welcome. Good to be here. Just the two of us uh, right now. Dale Denwalt emailed me yesterday, said he had some kind of meeting at the Capitol, so I guess he's doing his primary job. Uh, but we'll carry things here in the, in the second segment. Um, Justin, kind of the big political news across the country over the last 24 hours has been the comments of uh, President Donald Trump uh, reportedly saying in a meeting referring to uh, shithole nations in uh, putting down some nations when it comes to immigrants coming into the country and that's really kind of had a big ripple effect um, across the country. A lot of people are talking about it, a lot of people, especially Republican lawmakers, aren't, but we've heard a, a, a couple of Oklahoma's uh, delegation, a couple of members of Oklahoma's delegation has responded, correct? We have the two, uh, the Oklahoma City guys actually, uh, Congressman Russell, Congressman Steve Russell, and Senator Langford as well. So. Um, we have heard from both of them. I think we have a clip of uh, Congressman Russell, who is right here in this spot uh, this morning, uh, commenting on these uh, these very comments from the president. Yeah. Well, let's let's listen to uh, a, a part of that uh, interview that uh, the Oklahomans Dave Morris had with uh, Congressman Russell. Three of my children are immigrants uh, who came here on green cards. Uh, my perspective is very different from the president's. Absolutely. Okay. So if the president did say these things, and apparently there are uh, many uh, witnesses to that that uh, corroborate, I think it would go a long way for the president to uh, maybe exhibit a little humility. I think the American public would, you know, would like to see that. So let me ask you, you mentioned you know, two Oklahoma City guys. I mean, Lankford is representing the whole state, but well, yeah. from central Oklahoma. Yeah. Um, they held that congressional seat. Is that, uh, I, I don't know that it's a coincidence that those are the two guys. This is probably the most of the Republican voter. This is the, probably the, one of the more moderate sections of the state. There's that, and these are two Southern Baptists who rely heavily on their religion and their public mm -hmm. life. Yeah, these point. are two men guided by their religion who use that in their political uh, uh, decision-making and, and certainly in their public statements. So I think that is probably the biggest factor here. You have two people who see the president's comment as being um, not in line with their religious beliefs. And they are strongly religious. They belong to, like most religions, a religion that tells them to speak out when you see something that's wrong. And they, I think they heard something that was um, just not in line with their beliefs and felt like, at least when asked, 
that they should speak out and say what is on their mind regarding the president's statement. So I think that is probably the biggest coincidence. Yeah, I mean, and obviously, you know, in President Trump, you have, you know, a controversial political figure that during the primary, it was, it took a while for, you know, the majority of Republican voters to kind of come around to, to support him, um, you know, because of some comments like this. You know, you, I think you make a great point with the religious aspect because it seems to me that lawmakers that kind of have that identity based in their religion, their their, their Christian faith, um, it becomes a lot easy, a lot more easy for them to uh, compartmentalize. So, I mean, I think what we heard from from Russell and even the statement from Langford is that, um, you know, Russell went on to say, like, I think Trump has great vision for America and, and complimented his policies. Yes. Um, but I don't like his rhetoric and I don't like his tone on this, and that doesn't align with my faith. But you know, I'm, you know, I'm in Congress and we're trying to move, you know, we're trying to move policy and that's what I'm going to try to focus on. Yeah. And, and there are comments, uh, there's a, there a lengthy clip, a lengthy discussion this morning, several minutes at least on that topic alone. So we didn't get to all of it there in the clip, but there is a point where he cites the Apostle Paul. Um, in Senator Lankford's statement, I would not talk about, uh, about nations like this because the people of these countries are made in the image of God. Um, and have worth and human dignity for that reason. These are clearly two people, again, relying on their religion. Um, they've relied on it during their political career, and so now I think they feel they have to respond to these things when they come up. And we've heard these comments from uh, Langford and Russell before, mm -hmm. uh, especially on the issue of refugees, um, but on other immigration matters too. I and mean, they, they see that as being part of their faith to welcome people from other countries when they hear uh, ugly rhetoric to the contrary. They do feel they need to speak up to it uh, or speak up on it and reporters are going to go to them and ask for their comments because of their previous comments. Yeah. on these topics. Well, you talk about Russell, and not just his faith, but also his um, his family experience. He Absolutely, referenced having yeah. uh, children who are immigrants to the to this country. Yes. And we didn't hear it in this clip, but the, the full interview, which is definitely worth going and, and, and watching, yeah. um, it talked about his uh, military service. In fact, I he thought it was interesting. He said, listen, like, I don't condone this kind of talk. Now, he's like, have I talked <laughs> like this once or twice on the battlefield? Yeah. Maybe. Um, but kind of like, but maybe I've got a little bit of a pass. It's one thing to be talking about it when you're you know storming through Iraq compared yeah. to, you so, know, at the at the White House. Um, but, you know, Langford's really been, you know, he's been one of the most um, steady critics of Langford's rhetoric, but he hasn't of done Trump's it. Trump's rhetoric. Or, yeah. Sorry, Trump's rhetoric. Yeah. Langford of Trump. Langford has been one of the biggest critics of Trump's rhetoric, but in a I don't even I don't know if subtle is the right word, but in a way that doesn't get a lot of attention. I mean, of course, most people would like point to like Senator Flake as being one of the biggest sure. Republican critics uh, of Trump or, or McCain or some others. I mean, Langford's not you know going on a lot of talk shows to criticize the president, but you know I remember the town hall uh, mm -hmm. you know from several months back where he said you know hey the way that he talks I wouldn't want my yeah. kids talking like this. Yeah. Um, so he actually has been somewhat of a forceful. A critic of Trump, maybe not with the same fire and fury that Trump's opponents would like to see, but I mean, it's been there. You use fire and fury there. Well, I did. All right. yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that was at a Christian university where uh, Langford spoke and, and was critical of, he, he's very critical of Trump's way of going about things. And that's what we heard right here from Steve Russell is they agree with his policies in general, they agree with the direction he has for the country. They don't like his way of going about it. And a lot of voters don't. Even their voters who approve of Trump uh, and his policies and voted for him, perhaps, do not like a lot of this rhetoric, which they think really detracts from the larger uh, issues here. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly 
we've heard this from Russell and Langford before. They they do not like uh, this this sort of rhetoric from the president. Well, and history would tell them that probably you know this time next week this this probably won't be the dominant news cycle. There may be some other comments from Trump that they'll be asked to respond to, <laughs> um, but you know I think they they both said and you know the other members of the delegation who maybe are are going to stay silent on this or and, and really a lot of Republicans you know members of Congress are staying silent on that. I mean I guess the playbook on that is that hey. You know, just give it some time, 48 hours. We're going to be moving on to the next thing. If it even takes 48 hours, um, you know, we're taping it in the afternoon. There may be already something else, uh, you know, making the rounds on cable news. Well, one reason why, you know, members of Oklahoma's delegation may see the need to not completely, you know, rebuke the president. I mean, he's still a popular figure in Oklahoma, and he we is. saw this, uh, you know, in this week, um, you know, a poll that was commissioned by the Oklahoma Education Association that largely looked at education issues um, took a look at approval ratings for a few different figures, including President Trump, I mean, came out to 57%. Uh, 57% of likely voters in Oklahoma say that they have a positive view of Trump. Was that surprising to you at all? Or? No, I mean, it's still a Republican state, a deeply red state. He won every county in the state. Um, so 57% doesn't seem all that shocking. I, if I recall, there were some pretty polarizing numbers. Yeah, so 38% uh, very positive, 30% very negative. There you go. So, <laughs> so yeah, some still very polarizing in Oklahoma. Yeah, and polarizing around the country, starting to love or hate sort of figure. So not altogether shocking there. I don't see anything of great surprise. I don't know if you do. Yeah, no, I mean, it didn't surprise me that a majority did. I mean, yeah. I think someone responded, and I don't have it right in front of me, but that he won, like, if I remember right, 65% of the state's vote. And someone said, well, I think it's interesting it went down from 65. I mean, I don't yeah. know how much of a, a movement from 65 to 57. Uh, that doesn't seem to be a huge movement, moving of the needle. Um, I don't think his reelection odds have diminished in Oklahoma yet, at least no. not according to those polls. Five percent of people said that they were neutral on Trump, which I'd really like to talk to those five. Yeah, those, those five are the really, <laughs> the really interesting ones. That um, you know, that same poll showed um, so 25% positive, so very, both very positive and just positive uh, for Governor Fallon, um, and 18% for the legislature. That did not surprise me either. Mm. Yeah. Some so, people consider that high for the legislature. Eighteen percent. I actually kind of thought about numbers, that that, yeah. that, might, that that might be high. In fact, I had someone else from a, a local polling firm that says, "Hey, I've, I, we've seen much lower numbers than that uh, for the legislature." So, um, Trump still uh, viewed in a in a positive light by most voters, but the the governor and the legislature are not interesting there. Um, so, also in in kind of the f uh, federal government news, so. Um, Representative Jim Bridenstine nominated to be the administrator of NASA again, yes. um, you know, again because the year ended without his appointment. Correct, yeah. The, um, he was passed out of committee on a party line vote, 14 to 13, uh, in December, December 12th, I think it was. Uh, the full Senate never took it up for a vote, so if at least one senator objects, which there were more than one in this case, then uh, the nomination sent back to the president, who quickly sent it back send it back to uh, the Senate. So he is renominated again. This is expected to be an extremely close vote, a very interesting vote here. Democrats should be united in their opposition. They've said they are. Senate sources I've talked to say they are. That's 49 votes. So now you need 51 Republicans. You need at least 50 of them to go along with this. And then you'd have a 50-50 tie broken by the vice president. Senator Rubio, Marco Rubio, is expected to vote no at this point. He disagrees with Brian Stein on a few things. Uh, in a practical term, he doesn't think uh, NASA, he, he along with a lot of people, don't think NASA should be led by a politician. Um, 
there is also some personal and political disagreements. Brian Stein backed Ted Cruz during the 2016 election, which obviously Rubio ran in, uh, and even cut ads criticizing Rubio <laughs> with some suggestions that he'd be a weak commander-in-chief. So there's some personal animosity there as well. So if Rubio votes now, that leaves it 50-50 <clears throat> heading into uh, a vice presidential tie vote, but any other Republicans could either vote no or not show up. I mean, you have two octogenarians who are sick right now, and mm-hmm. uh, Senator McCain and Thad Cochran down in Mississippi. So if either of them don't show up and Rubio votes no and all Democrats vote no, then this confirmation uh, doesn't go forward. Now, he probably won't come up for a vote if they don't have the votes, but that is a possibility right now. And if, if he does pass, it will be most likely by the narrowest of margins. So very interesting vote. Democrats, for all of their opposition to Republican, uh, to Trump's nominees, have never blocked a Trump nominee in the Senate to a full vote. Now, they've gotten some nominees to more or less back out before it comes to a vote, but they've yet to have a failed vote in the Senate for a Trump nominee, and Bridenstine could be the first or could pass by a very, very narrow margin, which is unheard of in NASA's history. NASA has not had very many controversial nominees for administrator. They've traditionally been uh, consensus choices, and the one or two that were even somewhat op- opposed were nowhere close to 50-50 or 51-49. So a very interesting vote coming up in the Senate here. So if, if Trump is, is putting, you know, nominating a, you know, a politician essentially to, to lead NASA, is there anything about Bridenstine's positions that you feel like the Trump administration would really value in NASA that, I mean, to change it? I mean, if Rubio, you know, Rubio representing Florida, so NASA yeah. obviously, uh, you know, a big part of the, the industry down there. I mean, what is it about Bridenstine do you, that you think Trump, the Trump administration um, appreciates uh, in terms of him leading NASA? It's tough to say. He hasn't made a lot of comments. Uh, the president has not made a lot of comments about Congressman Bridenstine. Uh, Bridenstine has uh, some fairly bold plans for um, especially going back to the moon and using the moon as kind of a, a way to then go on to Mars and elsewhere. So he has some very bold ideas for NASA. Uh, to what extent the president is familiar with them or uh, approves of them, it's, he just hasn't commented a lot, so I, I wouldn't want to guess there. But uh, NASA, I mean, Bridenstine is seen as someone who's dealt with space policy quite a bit in Congress in his three terms uh, and is familiar with it. So. There is that, and you assume that when the president renominates Bridenstine, he A, obviously wants him there, and he also thinks he can pass the Senate, because uh, the president's not gonna want an embarrassment, a uh, failed vote, and space policy is handled by the vice president's office, uh, and certainly um, Vice President Pence knows a little bit about Congress, he knows how to get the votes, and he knows if the votes are not there, and if. His nominee is dead. I don't think he's going to send that nominee back out for renomination, as he did. So that tells me there could be the votes, but it will be close. Yeah, and that's subject to change. These, no one's locked in their vote quite yet. So a lot can a lot can happen here. It's going to be an interesting one to watch. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this, and I, know, I mean, I know you're not necessarily an expert on the culture of NASA. You know, it's not in our in our coverage area. Um, but I imagine you've seen some stuff. You know, Trump's nominees over the past year have had a tendency to be people that um, the 
status quo of the agency has kind of feared, for lack of a better term. I mean, we think about Pruitt at EPA. I mean, you've heard a lot of, you know, there was a lot of backlash from, you know, people who worked in the EPA and were worried about the direction yeah. it would go. I think DeVos, of uh, the boss for, yeah. you know, education, and a lot of people were worried about that. Has there been kind of the same concern, do you think, from NASA and the scientific community about Bridenstine? I think there has. I, I think you get that in the Senate testimony so far that we've had and the opposition from Democrats so far. I would say Trump nominates people who are like him in the sense that they're outsiders. They're not from the system um, that, you know, they're not from within the bureaucracy of either the EPA or mm -hmm. NASA or whatever uh, agency we're talking about. So like him, they come from the outside, and that's what Trump values. Uh, sometimes they even come from opposition groups, like Pruitt, I mean, who, mm -hmm. who sued the EPA, obviously, as our listeners and viewers know, and then went on to run it. So uh, I think he, he nominates people with that mentality, and there is inevitably going to be pushback to that within the industries or within the agencies who expected their guy to get risen up the ranks, who mm -hmm. went from you know, who's been the deputy administrator and who would seem to be in line for administrative positions. Since NASA administrators are often bureaucrats or people, I don't mean that as an insult that it sometimes is, but people within the agency who have managed other people before, who are familiar with NASA's work, a very hands-on way, and then will go on to, to lead NASA. That, that's typically been the people who do it. It's never been a politician, never been an elected official. And so Bridenstine's nomination is very unique in a lot of ways. And what that means for his uh, confirmation vote has been pretty interesting so far. It's not over yet. Yeah, well, I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, Bridenstine necessarily hasn't necessarily been a huge critic of NASA, at least not in the same way that like Pruitt was with the EPA and DeVos was with right. education. I mean, you know, Pruitt came in, you know, essentially, for, you know, for lack of a better phrase, I mean, wanting to dismantle the EPA. Uh, yeah. DeVos, not dismantle education, but totally, uh, you know, redistribute the focus and really expand school choice. You're saying, Bridenstine is saying, I want to go back to the moon, I want to go to Mars. I mean, sounds like right up NASA's alley, right? Yeah, I mean, he, he has some really ambitious plans for NASA. I don't know. Uh, he does want to get uh, kind of move away a little bit, I think, from the earth science, which has been criticized by Democrats because that deals with climate change. Uh, and there's a sense that he doesn't uh, fully grasp the, the, the effects of climate change, and he wants to get away from that research. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, certainly space uh, travel and space uh, research, it's well up NASA's alley. It's what most people would think of when they think of NASA. And he has some bold ideas for space travel, uh, whether they would fit into NASA's you know, budget, which is sometimes uh, has been shrinking sometimes, uh, or within its overall mission remains to be seen. But I don't think many people would be opposed to more uh, space travel from NASA. And yeah, you're right. It's not anything like what you would see from someone like uh, Pruitt or DeVos where it's a radical shift in the direction of those state agencies, or excuse me, federal agencies. Yeah, but you, like you said, I mean, an outsider, and outsiders make uh, Washington nervous. And politicians, <laughs> yeah. Politicians yes. nervous, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, so it'll be interesting, we don't necessarily have a timeline on when that vote's expected, like you said, a couple members out. There'll be a today. committee vote next Thursday uh, that's expected to probably just follow the same vote that you had before, since he's already gone through that vote. It'll, it'll yeah. be probably a formality. I'll watch just to be sure, of course. Um, and then, yeah, it, it, whenever the Senate Majority Leader uh, or, uh, believes he has the votes, uh, when McConnell wants to bring that up, 
then you can bring it up anytime after that. Assuming uh, Bridenstine does pass the committee and the same senators are on there that are, <laughs> were on there before, so you would think that yeah. he would. So. Is there an interim administrator right now? There is, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Imagine someone's minding the ship. Although there's smart people over at NASA, I'm sure they could <laughs> figure yeah. out how to get along without without yeah. a boss for a while. Um, what anything else you're kind of keeping an eye on or tracking? I, I think that's most of it. Uh, you know, I mean, obviously we have immigration debates right now, which are ongoing. Senator Linkford's been a part of some of those, although he's not in the room during the more uh, the expletive comment there yesterday. So um, we'll see what comes of immigration, but I don't even want to comment on that because it changes by the hour right now. Yeah. So. That could go a number of different ways. We have government funding coming up that has to be approved here within the next week or so. That can go several different ways. You'll probably get a short-term extension uh, to kick the can a little further down the road, but as they've done several times now. But eventually you'll have to have some kind of stability in, in government funding. So yeah, a lot of stuff on Congress is played, but I say that I think every time I'm yeah. on the show. Yeah, you definitely stay busy. We talked about Langford with the immigration debate, you know, the meeting that they had earlier this week, you know, Trump having, you know, Democrats and Republicans in and letting the media stay around for almost, you know, an hour yeah. uh, to watch what was going on. I noticed Langford was just a couple seats down from the president's left there. So he was, yeah. uh, given the fact that the president, you know, had and even said so as much afterwards, kind of used that as a, um, you know, for lack of a term, you know, a studio, you know, a television show, essentially. Sure. I mean, you know, it, it means something that length is <laughs> just a couple spots down. It does, yeah. Uh, that's not cheap real estate. So, <laughs> uh, well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Political State. We are in podcast form and on video. So uh, thanks for watching or listening, whichever is your preferred consumption method. We'll be back next week. We'll see if we can get Dale from the Capitol to come join us, or maybe we'll just go up there and see him uh, if he refuses to come <laughs> on next week's episode. Well, can't drag that guy away. Yeah. Uh, well, him. with uh, Justin, I'm Ben Felder with The Oklahoman. Uh, thanks for joining us this week. We will see you next week for another edition of Political State from The Oklahoman.